I'm going to be continuing our summer uh, study on the book of Ephesians, and uh, this morning we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. The title of my sermon this morning is, Is Grace Enough? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2 through 9. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you were used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those that are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. For it's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. As we continue our study with the book of Ephesians, we're going to look at this text into three parts. Verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 7, and verses 8 and 10. There are three specific points that Paul is giving instruction on how to renew the way that we think and get aligned with how God views his people versus the way we perceive the world and the way we perceive the church. So I'm going to do a little exegesis. So exegesis is studying scripture in its context and relaying its meaning in the context and then points to those points that are applicable to our lives. So... What Paul's doing here is he's challenging us to think the way that God thinks by systematically building our faith layer by layer by layer. And those layers build within us the foundation of our Christian experience, and it's what we call discipleship. Discipleship is all about pouring the knowledge of one Christian who is mature in their faith into others who have no faith at all or those that have little experience in their faith and those who desire to grow more. So Paul moves us from how God's plan of salvation was predestined for his church from the conception to execution in Jesus Christ and how and who could experience salvation. Chapter 2 is all about unpacking and shedding light on how a person could experience the spiritual blessing of redemption that God offers through Christ. But to do that, we have to look at the church through the lens that God does and understand that God's plan for redemption was predestined for the inclusion of all people, not just the Israelites. Let me say it this way. The plan of salvation or, or the plan of redemption is what's predestined, not a certain group of people. Rather, the plan is predestined for the inclusion of all people, not just a certain group of people. I'll say it again. A person is not predestined to spend eternity in hell, just as much as a person is not predestined to spend eternity in heaven. And with that in mind, Paul moves us 
into our part of the equation of how one participates in being the receptor of redemption and salvation by reminding us the state of being that everyone experiences prior to knowing Christ. Let's look at scripture. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, I think we all can agree with that, right? Again, we, we have to see the humanity from God's perspective. And in his eyes, humanity is dead to their sin because of the fall of man. We have all inherited a sinful nature. A sinful nature exists in every person, in all of humanity. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do on our own to gain favor or gain the favor of God because sin has created a barrier between us and God. Sin equates death in our life, and we can't escape that. Only God can grant new life, and it's God that predestines the offer, not by force, not deeming one worthy of it or another worthy of it, as, false, as the false doctrine of predestination teaches. Only God can grant a new life possibility. That's why, that's what God does through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and through the offering of Jesus, one can either accept Christ as Savior or reject. What makes you part of the elect, though? Well, to be part of the elect means that you have elected, you have chosen to follow after Christ, and you've chosen to live your life um, after Christ, or you choose to live life your own way. In verse in this verse, Paul reminds us who have already crossed the line of faith in verse 2. He says, In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In verse number 3 he says, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. Aha! Paul dials in on the culprit behind these new religions and this ulterior way of living by calling out the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The King James Version identifies him as the prince of the air. Satan is the ruler of the air, and he is the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's who Paul's talking about. Paul is pulling back the veil and showing that those involved in paganism, specifically the Hellenistic goddess uh, Aphrodite, uh, the worship of her, and the worship practice of these Hellenists practice that, uh, that the indulging of sexual immorality and gluttony and, and, and lies are, are gratifying the cravings of the flesh. Paul is pulling a Joshua moment here. Joshua reviewed the Israelites' wayward worship practices in the past, and he brings it to their attention when he said in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, he says, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day who you'll serve, whether the gods of your ancestors that served beyond the Euphrates and Pharaoh's captivity or the gods of the Amorites in whose land that you're now living. And then Joshua says this that I think we all know. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. See, Paul pulls that Joshua moment, and, and he does it by when he says, when we were dead in our sin, we deserve the wrath judgment of God. Uh, who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to us. He's talking to all of us. 
but keenly uh, to those Jewish Christians. Because hearing and experiencing all that anyone would question uh, the implication of God's grace, especially Jewish converts, because within Judaism there is no grace. Is God's grace enough to enable one to experience salvation is really the question. Well, first, yes, because of God's mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy. Now, Paul is redirecting us back to God's intent with the plan of redemption and, and shows us the tool that God uses to implement it into the equation of having a relationship with humanity. Mercy. According to Noah Webster, the word mercy means lenient or compassionate treatment. How many times have we seen God's mercy show up in the people of Israel? Well, there's Moses was granted mercy despite his disobedience. Job was shown mercy for his wife and his children. David was shown mercy because he got to keep his kingship regardless of his adultery with Bathsheba. Esther is shown mercy by being able to glean the, in, in the fields. Israel was shown mercy despite two different sets of captivities. Church, it's because of mercy that grace now exists. So, yes, is God's grace enough to enable us to experience salvation? Yes, because of mercy. But number two, the answer is yes, because of God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 7. God has made us alive with Christ even when we were dead and transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The tool that God uses to implement the plan of salvation or, or the plan of redemption is grace. Grace is the product of God's mercy in light of humanity's sin. God has mercy upon all human beings and demonstrates his love for us through grace. Grace is so simple. Simple. We are the ones that often make it hard. Why is that? Well, some people treat grace as a license to sin and fail to surrender all their life to God, while others, especially those who convert from religions like Judaism or Islam or Buddhism, um, where gaining favor with their God requires works or following the rules, there isn't such thing as grace. And others, because people know that they don't deserve it. Lastly, people make grace difficult because it's unfathomable to think that you don't have to do anything to earn it. Everything else in life is gained by earning it, isn't it? Well, church, we, we've bec we have really secularized the grace of God. Americans have even westernized the grace of God. Even denominations are guilty of it, and Calvinists are guilty of it, just as much as Wesleyans are guilty of it, as Catholics are guilty of it. We all live in a world of earning, deserving, and merit, and we expect to be judged based upon those three things. But that's the key to understanding why God chose to unilaterally offer grace as a means to have a covenantal relationship with Christ followers. Earning, deserving, and merit all result in judgment. Yes, we have a sinful nature that is prone to making sinful choices. Yes, we are sinners, but God just still chose to offer salvation in Christ to us regardless. It's not about earning it. It's not about deserving it. And there's nothing we can do to gain merit. 
because those things just result in some type of judgment and God offers his grace freely. So is God's grace enough to enable us to experience salvation? Well, yes, because of mercy. Yes, because of grace. And also, yes, because of our faith. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works so that anyone can boast. Paul repeats himself because he wants to reiterate that your salvation is extended to you by grace. However, it's only realized and experienced by you having faith in Jesus Christ. Now, your faith that you have comes from God. God is the one that enables your faith to happen, but we're the ones that have to step out on it. Accepting Jesus as Savior is the only condition that God puts on those who will receive his grace. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing the message of Christ, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. The power to believe is God-given, as I stated, but you have to use the God-given power to believe and have faith and, and, and utilize the faith that you've heard about Jesus and the plan of salvation for your own life. Otherwise, just hearing it doesn't satisfy justification for your sins. You have to take ownership of your own salvation for it to take effect. Paul says the plan of salvation doesn't come because of anything that you can work for. Asbury's commentary makes this statement about the difference between grace and works. It says, if salvation were by works, by effort, or obeying the law, there would be justification for humans to boast about their salvation, since some would be more obedient, more industrious, and more precise than others. Even those who are born with an advantage could utilize, even flaunt, the advantage, as those in Judaism were known to do. The truth is, however, that human redemption is not brought on by works, so there's no room for boasting. We are called to live a life of holiness. However, holiness doesn't have degrees of one person being more holier than another. Holiness is dependent upon our willingness to die away from our own sinful desires so that Satan cannot tempt us back into the way of life that we used to live. We will get more into holy, holy living later on in Ephesians. But as we close, it's important for us to take ownership of what God has done for us. Because of his love, because of his mercy, God grants grace and gives us the opportunity to be known and to know God and be in relationship with him. Grace is enough because of God's mercy, because of his grace, and because you and I have the ability to enact upon our God-given faith. Do you know why? The thing is, is God desires to be in relationship. The question is, do you know that way? Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that relationship with Christ? Only you can make that decision. It's not something your mother can do or your father can do. It's something that you have to do. Have you made a profession of faith in Christ? Have you received Jesus into your heart? Have you allowed him to save you from your sin? If you haven't, you can pray this prayer with me. Father, I ask you to forgive me, to save me from my sin. Enable me to live a new life that you have called me to live. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. It's that simple. Our profession of faith in Christ is enabled by God. God demonstrated it for us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can make that step of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.